Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In January 1649, England beheaded its king and became a republic. We know the republic ended with the restoration of the monarchy 11 years later. But those living through this time of hopeful revolution and constitutional experimentation had no such knowledge. Everything was contingent and exciting. Those existing in this heady decade were also not the drab, dull killjoys often depicted. They were inhabitants of a dynamic, rather chaotic age who sought to create a new world. But each had differing ideas of what that world should look like. Today's guest has brought this fizzing, tumultuous decade to the page and now brings it to us. Formerly Curatorial Director of the English Heritage, she is Dr Anna Kay, OBE, Director of the Landmark Trust. She's a trustee of the Royal Collection, a visiting professor at Birmingham City University, and a recipient of an honorary doctorate from UAE, in addition to her own PhD in history from Queen Mary University of London. Her previous books include The Last Royal Rebel, about James, Duke of Monmouth, and The Magnificent Monarch about Charles II. But her latest book, a really wonderful read that's been shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction, goes back to the 1650s. It is The Restless Republic, Britain Without a Crown. Dr. K. Anna, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Hi. Congratulations on this wonderful book. It is a fantastic read. Why did you want to write about the 1650s and why did you want to write in this way? I've been doing things on the 17th century generally for a long time, but I suppose that I, and I think I'm probably not alone in this, had slightly steered clear of the middle decade or two, the Civil War and the Republican years, partly because it felt very foreign territory and I'd been used to working Stuart Court things originally and partly because it had its whole own world of people who work on that stuff and I just thought I wouldn't know where I was with it. But I felt increasingly like that was a cop-out because, of course, the past doesn't divide up like that, does it? And it's actually, relatively speaking, quite a short period, a decade. A decade goes in the blink of an eye, doesn't it? And it was really the thought of people whose lives went right across the middle of it, which is obviously a lot of people who lived right the way through it, and trying to imagine what it was like for people to experience that degree of political dislocation, of upending of all the things that were familiar to you, not just big national things, but profoundly close local things like the Book of Common Prayer being abolished. I suppose I just had this gnawing feeling like I needed to not be skipping over it and that actually my own sort of sense of discomfort was probably in a way quite a good place to start with trying to understand what it was like to live through that. And I suppose it was slightly also given a kind of an additional sense of immediacy in the seven or eight years ago when I started thinking about this, when all of the Brexit conversations were happening, just because how do big seismic decisions get made about constitutional or national affairs 
what influences people to feel discontent, to what extent do they agree on what they want instead if there's a discontent with the status quo and so on. So for all those reasons, I thought that I'd really like to try and find my coordinates in that decade. And the way you've done it is to interweave the story of the nation with that of individuals. And the first that you introduce us to is the man who presided over King Charles I's trial, John Bradshaw. What kind of man was he? And why did he seem to be the most important person to start with? I wanted to write a book that told you what happened in that decade, because I thought that was something that people would be interested in. But I also wanted it to be a book that would explore what it was like to live through in a much more kind of human, immediate, getting up in the morning and every familiar thing is gone. So that took me to this notion that if I found a series of individuals for whom the documentation was good, so you could get quite close to their experience, that would be a way of not just talking in sort of generalities, but actually getting much more down to the finer grain of what it was like to experience. So if I was trying to do the two, I thought it would be important to find a cast of people who did touch some of the big, significant, defining moments of the decade, as well as those who were very much on the outskirts of it, because I also wanted to look at what's it like if you're nowhere near the middle of this. What's it like if you're just a farmer in Norfolk or whatever it is? So that kind of guided me. But I thought to begin with, because my period had very clear edges to it, it was the Republican years. It was from the execution of Charles I to the Restoration. So I thought I needed a figure connected to the execution of Charles I. And it just struck me that John Bradshaw, the man who tried the king, somebody who you feel like we really all ought to know his name. It's a pretty extraordinary thing that he presided over. And yet not only is he not known at all, really, outside those who work on this stuff, there's never been a decent biography of him. There's one book written by an American Bradshaw family member, which is sort of family history. So I just thought, let's start with him. Gets us right in at the action. And I like the thought that the book could begin. You could zoom right in, as it were, to Westminster, to the trial, the moment of the new kind of status quo or the new world order beginning. And I followed him. And he turned out to be an incredibly interesting character because the other thing I was really concerned about was that I think quite often it can really seem like the Puritans... So I suppose like, it depends how you approach it. For some people, great heroes, particularly as progressives. For other people, great iconoclasts and killjoys and destroyers of the order. But I felt like they were quite difficult to get close to. And so I thought that was another good reason to start with him. And as is the case always with figures in history, people are never two-dimensional. So it was with him. He seems particularly interesting because he's having to square this trial with his conscience. What do you think his experience was during the trial? Yes, I think he turned down the position of Lord President of the group of commissioners who tried the king, as several other people did. It was a pretty big ask of anyone. And he was obviously really torn about it, and I think that was true of a lot of people who participated in that trial. And one of the reasons I wanted to follow him before we get to the trial is to understand his backstory. And essentially, he was a lawyer, came from very respectable, quite affluent gentry stock in Cheshire. But he had an experience of trying to manage the town that he was mayor of during a really awful, long outbreak of the plague. And my reading of it was that you can see his political activism started straight after that and he'd been really not politically active at all until that point was that he like lots of people at the time with this very kind of providentialist understanding of the world saw these horrors being visited on England in the form of this case plague as an expression of God's discontent with the way things were and so I think when he was thinking about the trial of Charles I been asked to take the role of heading the commissioners He obviously really searched his conscience about it. He came to the view in the end that he would act. And there's an interesting thing he says about 
how to allow the guilty to go unchallenged is much of a sin as to condemn the innocent. So I think he felt that God was expecting it of him. But I don't think he ever felt uncomplicated about it because earlier on during the Civil War, he wasn't a sort of doctrinaire, parliamentarian or Puritan. He was very conscious of the sort of legal limitations to what was happening. But once he had decided that he would accept the commission, he was wedded to the idea of the original republic till his dying day, which was just before the end of the period. One thing you very much do in talking about him and throughout the book is to complicate the period. <laughs> in other <laughs> words, I don't mean to make it complicated to read. It's a beautifully <laughs> accessible book. But what you have done is to move away from these kind of black and white ideas that we have of the past, that there is this sense of ambivalence within individuals is crucial. And that there are these uncertainties. We all know how the story ends, but they did not. You know, One thing I found amazing in reading your book was that the king was executed without there being a clear plan for the nation's future. This is extraordinary. I know. Things come around and it's a bit like, not to be too political about it, Brexit was agreed to without anyone figuring out how you deal with Northern Ireland. It seems so incredibly obvious that you shouldn't act until you were clear about that, whatever your viewpoint on it. But there is a kind of momentum to stuff that means extraordinary things and decisions can be made without what seems on the face of it like utterly straightforward, obvious things that needed to be figured out before. So yes, you're right, and it is amazing. I think people often think the Civil War was a fight between Republicans and Royalists, and of course it wasn't. Both fought absolutely explicitly for the king. <laughs> they just had different ideas about how he should be king and what that should look like. And the, the fact that Charles I was put on trial happened very much at the last minute to do with the military coup, which prevented all the moderate MPs from sitting in the House of Commons. So as soon as that happened, you were in a kind of crazy revolutionary territory. And as you say, to the extent that when Charles I was executed, no one was clear. Is it just him? Is it the Stuarts altogether who we're getting rid of? Or is it monarchy? It would be a number of weeks before those questions would be resolved. One character that you think about is a name that people might know, Gerard Winstanley. He was a man who did have a vision for the future. What injustices do you feel most provoked him? And... What sort of world do you think he wanted to create? Yes, yeah, so he's an interesting figure. Those people who know the period well will know that he was the leading light of this group called The Diggers, memorialised in a very good song by Billy Bragg, for those who are listeners to his music. And Gerald Winstanley was one of a number of people who thought really differently, prompted by the extremes and the possibilities of this period of great change which is one of the things I love about this period is it's just all this stuff that would never have got any oxygen before was suddenly being discussed and thought about. His story is an interesting one because he was a clothier, he was a London merchant, quite small scale and he was obviously very intellectually brilliant and imaginative and creative, didn't come from a sort of educated background, had been apprenticed in the normal way to a trade but when his business failed, which it did, partly because the Civil War made lots of people's businesses fail, he had a kind of breakdown and moved out of the city into Surrey and essentially had a kind of epiphany when he was walking in his fields, looking after his livestock, which is what he was then doing. And he suddenly had a vision that if only ownership, property was not a construct and everyone was freed from that. All of these common areas, the commons of England, the unploughed lands and so on could be planted and suddenly there'd be plenty. There would be enough for everybody to eat and the sort of deprivations that he had experienced and others experienced during the war years would be gone. So it was a kind of communism, as it would be described in later centuries. It was very local. It was utterly optimistic. It was very unaggressive. It was very keen to say, we're not saying that anyone should give up their property. Me and a few fellows had joined me, just want to go to that 
bit of unplanned land over there and plant some cabbages. And if you'd like to join us, bring your hoe. It was very sort of uplifting. It was a tiny enterprise. There were only 50 of them ever involved. But because newspapers were a new phenomenon, because print was taking off, and because there was no longer the sort of restricting hand of censorship, which had more or less broken down in these years, the story about this kind of strange goings-on in Surrey travelled around the land. And he was very much prompted by the sort of optimistic, uplifting language that was used during the kind of debates about what sort of regime there should be, about freedom and about liberty. And although these were all being used in quite non-specific terms, he saw this as an invitation for something completely different. To me, it's one of the wonderful things about this period, which is that although clearly the Republic didn't last, and there are reasons for that, I think that's caused us to write it off as a decade in a way that's just really criminal, because so much happened during these years, that even though the kind of constitutional formulation didn't last, the possibilities of thinking differently about whether it's about representative assemblies, whether it's about religious toleration, whether it's about the kind of economic basis of wealth and so on, were open during these years. And that would feel so much that came later. That's absolutely the case. And I was thinking there's also scientific new thinking and all sorts of ways of thinking about how people can relate to each other. And yet I'm also struck by the conservatism. It seems fascinating and almost inexplicable that when Stanley's diggers came in for so much hostility from local people, from the self-same army that had fought with the king, from a minister of the church, why do you think they were so despised? You've mentioned print already, kind of aggravating that. But what was it about them when they were so small in number, as you've said, and seeking to do something that seems so, well, innocent and edifying to our eyes? Yes. And actually, it didn't terrify anyone in real position of authority. Thomas Fairfax, who was told that something interesting was going on there and we should be worried about it, rode over to see what was happening and came away saying, there's nothing to worry about here, and was, I think, rather taken with Win Stanley. Win Stanley certainly felt that he had the personal support or at least endorsement in some kind of tacit way of Thomas Fairfax. It was locally that it was problematic. So there was never a kind of national programme of trying to stamp them out. In fact, quite the opposite, even though the Council of State was told there's some very alarming things happening there when a couple of official investigations that went on said this is nothing to worry about. It was locally that it was thought to be very dangerous. And this is, I think, the kind of timeless local rivalries and parochial jealousies of local life. And part of the problem was that when Stanley and his gang had identified to plant their cabbages and peas, a bit of untilled land that was in the next door parish. So it wasn't in their parish. So you can imagine it in any area that you live in, it's whatever the other place is down the road that you think is rather, they're not our kind of people. So it was absolutely about not in my backyard. And I can really imagine, I live in Norfolk, and people in Kings Lynn are very sort of people in Norwich. Oh, no, we don't like them. Norwich, typical rolling of the eyes kind of thing. There's this kind of inherent sort of specificity about localities. So I think a lot of it was to do with it alarming people locally. And also because it was a bit threatening to kind of social hierarchy, even though it wasn't directly threatening to anybody's land holdings. But because the sort of people who joined Win Stanley, they weren't people who were on the commissions of peace, or they weren't the gentry people, they were somebody's second son, a shoemaker, a innkeeper, they were very much the kind of middling sort. So I think for those who were in positions of seniority, there was a kind of discomfort with what's happening, slightly upending the normal course of things. So he came a cropper, but I think much more for that reason than because it was seen nationally as in any way a threat. 
Mentioning the press, though, another one of the people that you spend time with is the marvellously named Marchmont Needham, or Nedham. This is definitely a period for great names. <laughs> I was looking and appreciating how well you open chapters. This chapter opens with him imprisoned in Newgate Prison. What was that like? What was his crime? And what does this tell us about the freedom of the press or speech, perhaps, in this new republic? Yes, as you say, he's sometimes called Needham, sometimes called Needham. I call him Needham. So Marchmont Needham was a newspaper man. And the reason for him being one of my protagonists was because one of the big, absolutely overpoweringly important things that happened during these years is the rise of mass media of, in this age, the newspaper. And Needham was a newspaper man who changed sides quite often between papers which were editorially royalist and those which were editorially republican. And he's a fascinating character for lots of reasons, because of this new trade. Also because lots of people weren't wedded to one side or another. You can sometimes have a feeling like the whole nation, you were either a manhead or a cavalier. And of course, most people were neither. Most people wanted to get on with their lives and avoid risk and keep their heads down. And then there were those who thought this is a great opportunity to make a few quid. And Needham was in that category. So he swapped over. And at the time of the execution of Charles I, he had moved from being a Republican editor to being a royalist one. And so he was on the run. 17th century New newspapers you think they might be really impossible like trying to read from somewhere in the middle of paradise lost and get your head around actually they're not like that at all they're full of jokes and caricatures and insults and they're very kind of snappy and he was the snappiest editor of them all and his paper's absolutely full of kind of excoriating pen portraits of Cromwell and looking like maggots had eaten his nose and John Bradshaw who was a sort of dirty upstart and he has this great line about poor liberty lying like a fly in a cobweb for all the kind of uplifting talk about freedom and so on. So anyway, he was caught up with and clapped up in prison in Newgate, one of the London prisons, which is a pretty grisly experience. And seeing that he was unlikely to come to a kind of happy end, he managed to escape, which happened quite often. I think if you had some money and you could pay your way out. So he escapes and goes into hiding in Minster Level in Oxfordshire. And he's got an onlooker as the Republic's PR disaster after PR disaster for the Republic. It wasn't a sort of popular thing to execute the king. And there was lots of unhappiness. There was a massive standing army that was still around, had to be paid for, was being billeted on people. And then there was the fiasco of the Irish campaign, which shocked people at the time. And um, Marchmont Needham could see that this was all a disaster and could see that what they needed was some really decent publicity, some kind of PR of the positive sort. So he wrote to John Bradshaw, who he had been absolutely insulting week after week in his paper just a few months before, and said, what you need is you need somebody to win everyone over and I'm your man. And John Milton, who was a great sort of loyal servant of the Republic, was given the job of looking at Marchmont Needham's copy and had to concede that actually this was going to be much more likely to change the minds of the mob and the man on the street than lots of learned terms about reform of the political system. So he was released and he was given a job of editing this new paper, Mercurius Politicus, which became really the first big regular national newspaper and established all the things about modern newspapers today and the idea that they're commercially viable, which it was very popular. And they're still with us. They certainly are. You mentioned their island and... For many people, you can't mention Oliver Cromwell without mentioning Ireland. Can we talk about the sort of brutal siege and massacre that took place in these years? Yes. As you say, Oliver Cromwell's name and the black marks against him are unforgettable in relation to Ireland. And so the point of the execution of Charles I, Ireland had not yet been, as it were, in their language, pacified or conquered for the English Republic. And Cromwell was dispatched to do that. 
And over the course of several months in 1649, principally, he did that, but it was utterly brutal. And of course, uh, famously at Drogheden at Wexford, awful human cost, unquestionably killing of disputed numbers, but significant numbers of both people who had already surrendered and of non-competent women and children. It was absolutely horrible. There's big debate about to what extent is that just Cromwell or was this actually, if you look at the Thirty Years' War, this kind of thing was happening all the time. And I think you can go through all of that, but I don't think you can get away from the fact that it was horrific. I think Cromwell was in charge of it, but I don't think he was the only person who would have done it. The treatment of the Irish typified an attitude to Ireland held widely in England by people of all political persuasions, that the Irish as Catholics were an ungovernable lot and needed to be treated rough and ready and didn't need to worry too much about what you were doing in the course of it. And I'm afraid that's true. Actually, I think one of the things that I was interested in is those two sieges are very indelibly marked in Irish memory and British memory. But actually, the redistribution of lands which followed, which is what I really focus on, had a much more long-lasting and fundamental effect on the kind of nuts and bolts of life in Ireland. And it was something that was predetermined before Oliver Cromwell had even got on the boat. It was predetermined before Charles I had lost his throne. I think we have to broaden our lens a bit and not just say Cromwell and his evil actions in Ireland. It was about English attitudes to the Irish in the 17th century. And I think even if Charles I had won the Civil War, very much the same thing very probably would have happened. That's very interesting. Yes, so it's a sort of cultural phenomenon as much as the actions of one person. But I wonder if it's on the strength of those so-called achievements that we see Cromwell able to put down John Bradshaw and the Rump Parliament and then by December 1653 be declared Lord Protector of England and Scotland and Ireland. Do you think that was a crucial part of the story? I think that Cromwell and the army, when they came back from the brutal realities of those campaigns, a lot of the brutality on their side, but they didn't have a monopoly on that. There was brutality in other places too. They had been fighting the fight for the thing they were fighting for, which was the Puritan Republic. And I think when they came back to London after two years of doing that in Ireland and then Scotland, they regarded those who had been in the warmth and comfort of the Commons Chamber responsible for governing the kingdom as having been utterly complacent in terms of what were they doing for the revolution and for the republic? Where was the radical reform of the English legal system or the voting franchise or any of the other things which had been talked about? And it was off the back of a feeling of real resentment of those MPs for not having done more that Cromwell and the army officers expelled the Rump Parliament and the Protectorate was instituted. So I think they're definitely related I think once they've made the decision that we're going whole hog, we're executing Charles I, either this is a whole new age and things are going to be utterly different and it's going to justify what you've just done, or it's going to turn out you just cut off the head of somebody you didn't like and it's just brutality. It's like murdering somebody on the side of a road. That meant there was a kind of urgency and a kind of baked-in necessity for the radicalism to continue, which did result in these further dramatic acts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Just before I get back to my chat with Anna Kay about Oliver Cromwell and his restless republic, I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast, which I think you're going to love. Of course, we've talked about Shakespeare from time to time on Not Just the Tudors, and there's plenty more where that came from. But there's a new podcast called Where There's a Will, which takes a journey to the surprising places Shakespeare shows up outside the theatre. In it, theatre director Barry Edelstein asks what is it about Shakespeare that's given him a continuous afterlife in all sorts of unexpected ways. You'll hear about Shakespeare doing rehabilitative work in a maximum security prison, helping young people on the autism spectrum to communicate, shaping religious observances in the mouths of American presidents and even at the centre of a deadly riot in New York City. So do join Barry as he uncovers the way Shakespeare endures in our modern society and what that says about us. Listen to Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned until the end of this episode for a sneak preview. Now, in this book, you also draw in the lives of lots of women. And one of the women that you talk about is someone who's prophesied that this is going to happen, Anna <laughs> Trapnell. Tell us about this extraordinary visionary from East London and what her rise, I suppose, her fame can tell us about women and faith and politics and how they were intersecting at this time. Yeah, so Anna Trapnell was a young woman, youngish, about 30, who lived alone. She was unmarried and she was a member of a nonconformist church, in this case the Fifth Monarchists, who didn't last the course, but they were part of the same sort of collection of nonconformists, including the Baptists and the Quakers and others at the time. And she started having these visions, these very vivid, detailed, strange, and quite specific in some cases visions, which involved God, involved political figures of the time, including Cromwell himself and others. And they started attracting a lot of attention, partly because she prophesied a number of things which then seemed to come true quite quickly, including the expulsion of the MPs of the Rump Parliament, as you were just saying. 
and she became a sort of celebrity. It's very interesting, as you say, because this is such an interesting period for women. As we know, war changes women's experience always. But also here, not only do you have the kind of bringing to the fore of women into all sorts of things that they weren't doing normally because of the absence of the men fighting and so on, but you also have this possibility of new understandings of the relationship between people and God. And these in the sort of low church, non-conformist groups, the Baptists, the Quakers and so on, very unhierarchical, didn't have a space for a kind of priest-like figure who was the intermediary between you and God who would be the kind of go-between. It was you straight to God. And of course, for women, this was a massive thing because it meant they had an individual direct relationship with God that didn't involve mediation through a man. And it's very interesting that the rise of these non-conformist groups, the congregations were very strongly female, which is fascinating, to the extent that it became a subject for lots of jokes about feeling uncomfortable about the women all going to these non-conformist churches. So Anna Trapnell is one of these women who has a very strong relationship with God and whose experience is really picked up on. And she then has a vision of Oliver Cromwell essentially being turned upon by God. And so those who are unhappy with Cromwell say, aha, Cromwell is fallen out of God's favour and we need to get rid of him. And so they take her on a kind of tour round Cornwall quite an unlikely enterprise, to try and drum up anti-Cromwell feeling. It's a kind of rather amazing individual tale of what it's like to be a young woman, not educated but literate, and to be in this world at the time. But it's also very interesting, I think, about what it was like to be one of these non-conformists. I think so often it's hard to get your head around the very fire and brimstone Puritan end of the religious scale, it can seem very bleak and joyless and hard to empathise with. And I really wanted to be able to get next to these people and not just dismiss them as nutters or killjoys. And I think when you start understanding how Anna Trapman was brought up and being brought up a hardcore Puritan was a hard experience. You spent the whole time feeling that you weren't one of the elect. Why weren't you bursting into tears during the sermon? Why weren't you speaking in tongues? It showed that you weren't one of the elect. So there's great anxiety about whether or not you've been chosen. And I thought in following her story, I think you can really understand what that was like and you can admire her and feel empathy for her. And in the end, she manages to claim back her own identity from these people who are trying to make her be a mascot for a political movement. And I thought that was a rather wonderful story. It certainly is. And absolutely right. The picture that you paint of her childhood, the harshness of it seems, you know, really quite terrifying. The way that faith could be used in such a dogmatic way, of course, something we're very familiar with, but just to see it in the life of one person is very instructive. And yet you very much convey this sense of the joy of the period. A couple of ways that you do that is you contradict the popular image of, well, theatres are closed in 1642. Well, that's true, and they remain closed, but you paint a very vivid picture of the diverse entertainments that you could enjoy in the 1650s. And a story of actually three generations of widowed women that you pick up on in Norfolk complicates our idea about the Republican Christmas as well. So there's various ways in which you're making sure that actually you're trying to tell the truth about how it was as opposed to this kind of popular quiz show answer who cancelled Christmas. Yes, I really wanted to do that because these are all people like us with all the same appetite for amusement and finding things funny even in awful times. The reason I homed in on one of those people was because they'd written a joke book during the period and I just love that idea and we all know that about life even in really bleak moments even when you someone you love dies there's a scope for humour and humanity is utterly enduring and pushes its way through all sorts of bleak moments so I really wanted to get a sense of that and it wasn't difficult to do because 
It's with a great joy, if you've got the right source material, and I chose my people so that they came with that, and you can get to the texture of, okay, what are people eating on Christmas Day in 1655? They're not sitting there with an oat cake and a glass of water. They've got turkeys and venison and plum pies and nutmeg. And being able to get to a body of material that actually tells you that totally for certain, it's not something you're just summoning up out of a desire to contradict. You're actually following it through with a body of material. So... I love that and I love the feeling that just because the period is full of conflict, disagreement and all those things, it doesn't mean it isn't full of energy and life and joy and laughter and that all sorts of things that we find uplifting, if also complicated, can be part of it. And that was certainly what I found in digging around in this decade. And I love that you also make sure that you're focusing on those peripheries because it really changes how we understand the impact of and perhaps interest in political changes outside the capital, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so I really wanted exactly to do that, to try to make sure that this wasn't a story about stuff that you can read in the state papers and which happened in Westminster in the City of London. Because as we know, that is so much only a part of even politics, let alone life. And I was just also just really interested, to what extent did it actually make a difference? People felt when the king was executed, surely it's just the plagues of locusts are going to start arriving. This is such a kind of iconoclastic thing to do. And yet, if you were in Lancashire, or you were in Midlothian, or you were in Lincolnshire, what does that actually mean for you beyond the kind of shock of the sort of headline? So I was really interested to follow that. And we have such wonderful archives in this country. You can read the detail of the quarter sessions, the local courts that try minor crimes and so on through those years to really get a texture of what's happening. And I really liked the thought of trying to understand it from that end of the telescope. Because then things like the fact, something was never talked about, which is that in 1651, or possibly 1652, the majority of English law is moved from being conducted in Latin to being conducted in English, and the records go into English. This is like a seismic change, because if you were being tried for something, you could actually understand what was being said. So that, to me, is like a massive change, and one which I, it's hard to imagine anyone thinking wasn't a good change, and yet it doesn't ever really feature in discussions of this period. And similarly, going to church is obviously the great rhythm of people's lives. And obviously the kind of rubric, the liturgy changed because the Book of Common Prayer was abolished and lots of church festivals were abolished. A new, much sparer church calendar was brought in. But actually, if you look very closely and you follow what happened to all the vicars of the individual parishes, and you see that actually, in the case of the bit of Norfolk I was looking at, almost none of them change. So then if you're going to that church, OK, the words might be different and what the guy's wearing might be different. But if it's still that man, if it's still the person that you know and baptised your children, is it such a change? Actually, that's much more of a continuity probably than the formulation and than what the kind of stuff on paper would tell you, which would make it seem like it was wildly, dramatically different. Now, there are lots of wonderful people you pick up on that we don't have time to talk about today just to tantalise the listener so they go and pick up a book. Let's mention, in passing, the formidable Charlotte Countess of Derby, who was a French Protestant woman who defended the Isle of Man, or the miracle worker who resurrected a woman who'd been hanged, William Petty, and then did some similarly miraculous work in the mapping of Ireland. And think instead about the main man, Cromwell himself, because your picture of him is really interesting. (laughs) And I suppose one thing I really want to ask you about is his character. You give an amazing description of the sort of contradictions, this composition of contradictions, in his character. 
The protector was a kind man who oversaw appalling atrocities, a consultative man who repeatedly dismissed elected parliaments in boiling rage, a passionate reformer who believed in the conservative ways of the country, a man of great humility who died in the bedchamber of a king with every power but his name. How do you make sense of him? Yes, he's such an interesting figure. Well, I think the thing about Cromwell is that at the age of 40, he was living still in East Anglia, where he'd been born and brought up as a country gentleman, basically. And he came from very traditional stock. He was brought up in comfort. He went to good school. He went to Cambridge. He had all the sort of trappings of a gentry country gentleman background, funded, interestingly, by his great, many times over, uncle Thomas Cromwell, whose relation he was. And so it was that money that paid for all that. But then he had a great personal collapse, an emotional breakdown following a kind of humiliation to do with local affairs. And tied up with that, he lost a lot of money. And so he was in absolute state of what I think we would call depression today. And in that state, living really as a tenant farmer, having been an MP, so it's a real come down, he had a religious conversion. He had a moment of absolute epiphany in the depths of his despair. God came to him and he claimed him for his own. People are contradictory. We could think of any of our friends and come up with ways in which they're not consistently one thing or another. They're a cocktail of things. But I think it's more than usually true of Cromwell, because what that did was it meant that Cromwell, the country gentleman, 40 years standing, father of many children and respectable figure of the locality, was there. But now on top of that was the utterly clear-sighted religious convert to never specified godly religion, a personal passionate relationship with God, actually going back to what we were saying. So he wasn't of one particular religious subset, interestingly. He wasn't a Baptist, he wasn't a Quaker, he was his own thing. But what that meant was that he had two halves to him. He had all of the passion, the zeal, the sense of drive and need to follow the light of his conversion. But he also had the concerns, the affections, the associations, the appetites of a country gentleman and caused him no end of problems, these two things being combined. Makes him an incredibly interesting character. But it also means that he was a person in kind of internal combat always. And so that, I think, accounts for a lot of the things which were challenging about, for example, if he'd agreed to be made king, which is what those around him proposed in the later 1650s, it would have made people in the sort of political world much happier and it would have made them much more stable. I think that's pretty clear. But he couldn't bring himself to do it because he just had this really strong sense that this was a kind of proud sort of self-aggrandizing thing that when God gathered him home he would be shocked and disappointed about so even though it was politically madness not to agree to it really this was this side of his character to the fore that's the heart of it and you read his letters to his children they're really fascinating his devotion to his children his desire for them to be comfortable to be happy he writes to his eldest daughter who's got a very passionate strong religious streak and says don't be too religious remember there are other things which doesn't accord to the sort of two-dimensional view of Cromwell at all but then you realize that he wasn't two-dimensional those sense of contradictions are present, aren't they? In his final act, the naming of his successor, it seems extraordinary that this person we associate with one of the greatest revolutions ever to happen in British history reverts to primogeniture. Why, do you think? Well, I think it's exactly that. 
The formulation was of the constitution at the end of Cromwell's life is that the Lord Protector, whoever holds that role, can name their successor. And everybody around him was obviously desperate for him to name his successor because he was clearly ill and what was going to happen. And there was obviously a risk that when Cromwell died, there'd be some kind of royalist uprising. It would be an obvious moment for some kind of reaction. And he wouldn't and he wouldn't and he wouldn't. And the reason seems to be pretty clear, which is that he was waiting for a sign from God because that's how he worked. And it wasn't until literally the night of his death, and in fact, there's even some ambiguity about this, but as far as we understand it, on his deathbed, he names his son Richard. And as you say, on the face of it, it's madness because Richard Cromwell is a perfectly able, bright young man, but has been brought up entirely as a country gentleman. He hasn't served in the army. He hasn't governed some province of the British Isles. He's had no experience whatsoever. He's got no network, got no kind of education to support this really huge responsibility. Meanwhile, he has a second son, Henry Cromwell, who has all those things, who's incredibly well-educated, but also has been in the army for a long time. He's been governing Ireland very successfully. He's got a great political network. He's admired and widely liked. But, yeah, it's because the country gentleman is there and that fathers are succeeded by their eldest sons. And that thing overtook everything. And I think probably it's what he always wanted to do, but until that last moment when he was forced to decide, this concern that if in aggrandising his son, again, that God would see this as feathering his own nest, was probably the thing that was preventing him from doing it. But again, he was no politician, really. He was a brilliant soldier, absolutely no doubt about that and a remarkable man in lots of ways. But when you've always got your eye to the signs from on high, it doesn't necessarily make for the most kind of astute political decision-making. The last person we must talk about is someone who very much was a politician, at least by my reading, of your work, George Monk. And I'd particularly like to talk about the influence of his bigamous wife, Anne, <laughs> in <laughs> persuading him to intervene to change the course of history. How pivotal do you think she was? And obviously do tell us what he did, of course, as well. Yes, yeah, so George Monk is my sort of final figure, and for good reason, because he's general in Oliver Cromwell's army, and in the 18 months or year after Cromwell dies, as the country kind of dissolves into chaos, as regime after regime collapses, he is the person who intervenes, he marches his army south from Edinburgh, because that's where he's based, in order to enforce Parliament being allowed to meet. Not to restore the monarchy, but to allow a free Parliament to meet. And it is an amazing vault fast from somebody, part of the reason he's able to pull it off, because it involves turning the army, who are, after all, the most sort of vested in the radical Republican regime of any group of people, actually turning them upon themselves, upon their own generals, because it's his bit of the army that he marches to London to enforce this. And he's a fascinating figure in lots and lots of ways. But as you said, one of the things that I talk quite a lot about, partly because for reasons that are quite mysterious, no one else has ever talked about it, which is the extent to which he was influenced by his wife, Anne. And she's a fascinating figure for lots of reasons. They meet in the Tower of London when he's a prisoner. She's a laundress. He was son of a knight. And she's absolutely in the sort of bottom rungs of society. But it's very clear, if you follow the description of this, the whole series of events that take place during this time is left by several sources, including their chaplain, who was there at their side all the way through, published at the time, makes absolutely clear that it is she who is very outspoken. She's a formidable figure devoted to her husband and he to her, who goes to her husband repeatedly and says, you have to act. And having done that, goes to him and essentially says, the restoration of the king is where we're going to end up with this. 
And I just thought that she was a fascinating figure. I thought the fact that she's been completely written out is interesting. Here we've got someone who not only has never had a biography, doesn't even have an entry in the DNB. What is it, 60,000 entries? And there isn't room for this person whose actions was what brought about a restoration of the monarchy. It's amazing. But she was salty and she was sweary and plain and all the things which contemporary writers of things from Samuel Pepys to Clarendon and historians, male mostly, ever since have taken no interest in and found off-putting. And so she's been written out. I'd love to have made her be my main character for my last... It's actually the two of them together, really. But actually the source material just isn't strong enough. I would have been making up things and I didn't want that to be the case. She's a sort of double billing with her husband in my final chapters about how the restoration came about. I'm sure that the DMB, the Dictionary of National Biography, will be on the phone asking you to write her entry. (laughs) (laughs) The question that I must ask before we finish is why did the Republic not succeed in the end, do you think? I think it didn't succeed for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, it never enjoyed the support of enough of the political nation to be able to endure. It survived as long as it did because it had a big army. It had a lot of soldiers with guns and bombs and weapons holding it in being. But in chemistry, it's like a sort of unstable compound. It didn't have enough inherent stability in terms of support of the political nation to be able to survive without it being a kind of a military state. Had Cromwell agreed to take the crown and the kind of constitution that was part of been agreed, I think it would have endured. But then, of course, then the argument is, isn't that just going back to monarchy? That was the fundamental issue with it. The fact that the only way that Charles I had been tried was by a military coup, by the exclusion of MPs from the House of Commons, was a kind of absolutely fatal flaw in the foundations of the Republic. And it never really got beyond that issue. Had Cromwell lived a lot longer, might it have endured? Maybe. I doubt it. Had he named his son Henry? I think that's the interesting question. I think that might well have had a chance of longevity, but it wasn't to be. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about this. In case it hasn't been manifestly clear, I really loved your book. I think it's a very fine piece of work. The way that you make this vast story through these protagonists seem interconnected and compelling and you have a very vital and kind of arresting style. And above all, that you make this period, which, as you say, has been so written off into something that feels as exciting and angst-ridden and tumultuous as it surely must have been to live through is an astonishing achievement. It is no wonder to me that it's shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize, and I recommend it to listeners. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Oh, thank you, and thank you for your lovely, generous words and for the chance to share it all, and I hope people enjoy it. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. What is honour? A word. What is in that word, honour? Oh, thou hast infected the sweetness of friendship. What wound, he writes, did ever heal but by degrees? Lord, what fools these mortals be. We view 
we happy few, we band of brothers. Those are the words of William Shakespeare. He died over 400 years ago, but his presence is very much alive. I mean, he put a lot of work and effort and genius into everything that he did. I think he just did it first. If you can't see yourself in Shakespeare, something's wrong with you. I'm Barry Edelstein, and I run the Old Globe in San Diego, one of the country's leading Shakespeare theaters. And this is Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, from the Globe and Pushkin Industries. Our show discovers Shakespeare in all sorts of unexpected places and asks what he's doing there and what his presence means about him and about us. My companion on this search for old William is M. Weinstein. I'm a director and writer working on television and on stage, and Shakespeare has played a huge role in my life. Barry and I have spoken to some amazing people and asked them what Shakespeare means to them. I was, like, fortunate enough, really, to get, to get cast as Francis Flute. That was an image of being a trans woman that I had never had before. Em and I wondered why we seem to be in the middle of a huge Hamlet moment. The question shifted from to be or not to be to do I be this way or do I be that way? And we wanted to know why Shakespeare's been so important to America. What I always do for the younger generation is I say, find your story in it and fight for it because it does belong to us. You can't help but change being in Shakespeare. There's no way that you can be the same person. Impossible. It's literally impossible. Right? What is it about Shakespeare that keeps him showing up in surprising corners of our world? And how is it that he was once at the center of a debate about American identity, and now he's doing rehabilitative work in correctional facilities, and showing up in the mouths of presidents and politicians, and helping kids on the autism spectrum to communicate? And what does it say about us that we keep putting him in these places? All this is what we want to get at with Where There's a Will. Shakespeare belongs to us. He's not your property because you have money. He's not your property because of your class and education. He's our property. Where There's a Will, from the Old Globe and Pushkin Industries, coming November 10th. You can listen ad-free by subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Sign up on the Where There's a Will show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash plus. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.